We continue um, a series that we took a break from during the Advent season in 1 Corinthians, God Loves Messy Churches too. We're back to that messy church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and the first nine verses. So please uh, turn there in a copy of God's Word so that you can read and follow along. Page 953. First Corinthians chapter three in the first nine verses. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers." You are God's field, God's building. Grass withers, the flower fades. This is the word of our Lord. It endures forever. Well, as the youngest child in my family, uh, for a time I felt it was my mission and indeed my calling in life to annoy my older siblings. Well, really just my sister. Um, And I was good at it. I was really good at it. I crashed all her hangouts, spilled all her embarrassing secrets, and I was just a general nuisance. Um, and over and over again, understandably, understandably she, would, she would snap at me, saying, just grow up, why don't you? Just grow up already. Now, of course, I was able to elicit the exact response I wanted. That's what I wanted, to hear her in exasperation scream at me. And um, I had no interest in growing up, though, because... The implication was, if I were to grow up, I would not be annoying to my sister, and that was not what I was after. And I think we all know, um, even young children can recognize, especially as they butt heads with their older siblings, that to grow up means there needs to be a change, a a transformation, and we don't always want that particular change. We're, We're not ready for it. We're not ready to give up what we might have to give up to make that change happen. This is something of the concern that Paul has with the Corinthian church, as we're going to see, uh, they, they are seemingly content to be stuck in their spiritual immaturity. Uh, they would not call themselves spiritually immature. We're going to find out that they think they're actually very uh, spiritual people. But this is the situation. Paul is stressing in this section that until the Corinthians grow up, they cannot grow. 
let me say that again. It maybe didn't make sense of the first hearing. Hopefully, it'll sink in in a moment. Until the Corinthians grow up, they won't be able to grow. That is to say, until they get over their petty squabbles, they will never be in a position to be used by God. Until they grow up, they can't grow. They won't be able to be used in the way they're meant to be used. And that's a good lesson for us as Christians to learn uh, individually and also corporately as a church family. We want to be used by God. Uh, we want to be grown by God, to be cultivated by him, to, to mature and to do the things he wants us to do. We want to um, cultivate those, those virtues that can come only from the Holy Spirit. We want godliness. We want grace, wisdom, uh, peace in our lives. We want righteousness. But to do that, we need to grow up. We need to get over ourselves. We need to get over our disagreements with others. And most especially, what we need is to focus on God. And I think that comes out really clearly in this text. So let's listen in as Paul teaches these truths to the Corinthians. And, and he does it really in two, two main ways. First, he does it by calling out their behavior or calling out their error. And then secondly, by correcting it. So first, he calls them out. And then second, he offers correction. So calling uh, the Corinthians out, that's verses 1 through 4. The correction comes in verses 5 through 9. So let's look uh, again at verse 1. You notice that it begins with an adversative conjunction, but Paul is contrasting something that he's just said. And since it's been about a month and a half since we were in Corinthians, we go back and to the end of chapter 2 to see what he has just said. And there we find Paul saying that a distinct privilege of the Christian life is that we receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit enables us to do something that a mere human can't do, and that is to discern the things of God. Uh, look what he uh, begins to say there in verse 14 of chapter 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for those things are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the unbeliever cannot discern spiritual things. But the spiritual person, verse 15, judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. Why is that? Well, we're told at the end of verse 16, for we have the mind of Christ. Spiritual people have the mind of Christ and are able to discern spiritual things. And then you turn to chapter 3 and it's as though Paul says, except for you guys. Not you, really. Not you, Corinth. Um, you are unable to, to discern spiritual matters. Uh, he says, I cannot, but I, brothers. So he's being, he's being pastoral to them. He, he is saying something very um, hard to hear, and yet he addresses them as brothers. He says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people. Uh, he couldn't speak to them at, at this level of spirituality. Why is it? He says, because you are infants in Christ. You're little babies, babes in the faith that the King James, I believe, has babes in Christ, babes. Uh, and what Paul says here is pretty shocking, even insulting, I think, to the Corinthians. They considered themselves to be very spiritual, and that's why there's a big long section towards the end of Corinthians where Paul has to correct their view of spiritual gifts because they think they're pretty, pretty special and that they have uh, different gifting so they uh, by the Holy Spirit. So, so this would really come as a shock to them. Um, he cuts them down to size by saying, I really can't even talk to you like Christians. 
Um, not, not, not at a real level, at least. Not mature Christians, anyway. Paul says their behavior and their thinking is more like the world than the church. They appear to be more like people of the flesh than people of the spirit. Uh, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Now, that spirit-flesh distinction is one we find a lot in Paul's writings, and oftentimes it's a synonym for believer-nonbeliever. If you're of the flesh, you are not saved. If you're of the spirit, you're a Christian. It's important to say that that's not the way he's using the distinction here, because he says, he, he, he sort of maybe can recognize they might think that's what he means, so he says, your babes or your infants in Christ. So what I'm saying about you is still something that's true of you in Christ. He's not saying you're not Christians. Um, he's, he's not saying that at all. He's saying they're just immature Christians. Now, being in Christ is the thing that matters most. That's the most important thing. And being an infant or a baby in the faith is not a bad thing at all, at least um, not necessarily, I should say. It's not a bad thing necessarily. Uh, it is better to be a babe in godliness than to be an adult in worldliness. Better to be a babe in Christ than mature in the world. Being in Christ is the thing that matters most of all. Um, there are some of you who are here tonight who likely are babes in the faith, and that's not a bad thing, not necessarily. That's not a dig. Uh, we don't look down on our infants if they're unable to and maybe pull themselves up or walk on their own or feed themselves. Why is it? Because we don't uh, measure a baby by the standards of an adult. We re recognize this is just part of the maturation process. But at the same time, there comes a point uh, where we recognize uh, infants uh, need to make certain progress and there, there's even a medical diagnosis if that doesn't happen, FTT, failure to thrive. So sometimes doctors will, will say that about children, and that means that they have not reached certain developmental uh, goals um, or markers that are appropriate for their age. And so that's a serious concern, a failure to thrive. That's what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians. He's not saying... You know, you, you just were converted last week, and you're still acting like children. No, there's a place. Paul's going to say later on, isn't he, in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I, I spoke as a child. Right? But when, when I grew up, I put childish things away. And he's saying, you've never grown up. You've never grown up. You, you've had a failure to thrive in your spirituality. Uh, there has been, since the time that Paul has planted the church, essentially no progress in their faith and their life. He says he once fed them with milk, verse 2, that is with the basic principles of Christianity. But notice then he says at the end of verse 2, I fed you with milk, that's, that's not bad, not solid food, we get that, for you were not ready for it when I planted the church. But here's the issue, the end of verse 2, but even now you're not ready for solid food. That's the problem, that they still need milk. So he still interacts with them at the uh, level of the introductory level. Um, they're, they're not advanced. They're not even intermediate, right? This is the ABCs of Christianity. That's all uh, Paul can uh, talk with them is in the ABCs. They're Christians, but that's just about it. So it's really just like the most jarring thing Paul could be saying to people who think they're all that. And he says, no, you're not much at all, actually. And why does he say it? What's the evidence to him of this spiritual immaturity? 
It's in verse 3. Look there with me. He says, there is jealousy and strife among you. Jealousy and strife. Maybe two behaviors that we wouldn't put at the top of the list of most heinous sins out there. And yet, notice this. The Bible does not wink at them. Jealousy, envy, and strife, or dissension. These are behaviors that the Bible takes very seriously. And they're behaviors that if they're exhibited in your life as one who professes to be a Christian, the Apostle Paul would say, well, you're not a very mature Christian. So are you jealous of others? Are you jealous when other people get their way? Are you envious of the things they have or, or the um, influence that they, they wield in their circles? Are you happy when you see others do well or do you sort of do a somersault in, in your insides, right? Do you kind of smolder on the inside when you see other people happy? Do you cause strife in the church? Do you like to stir the pot? Do you need to assert your way? Do you always need to voice your opinion, put other people down, tell them why they're wrong? Paul would say, as he does at the end of verse 3, you're of the flesh and you're behaving in a human way. I want to say as a a personal aside that I was pastorally pleased and proud of all of the conduct um, and all the work that was done here in this past week plus to get us to this point. I never once caught a hint of jealousy or strife between our two congregations as we um, worked through this exchange. I got a text message from Pastor Bill praying for you today, brothers, this morning before going up. We are so excited for your congregation. Preach it, brother, he said. No, no hint of jealousy at all. And then, then I was thinking about the past week where we're all here setting up, and Carrie Ann and I were, were kind of counting informally, and there, there was over 70 people here throughout the week. And I, there was no strife. I mean, think about all the opinions people have about all the things, Right? Um, And those were expressed, that's fine, those were voiced, um, but they were certainly not um, always shared. But I saw the opposite of strife, I saw peace, I saw deference, I saw grace, I saw humility, I saw people uh, saying, well, that's not maybe how I would do it, but but if that's what you think we should do, let's, let's go for it. And that means I did not see baby Christians, and that makes me proud as a pastor. That's an encouragement for you, because I think some of the stuff coming on later is pretty heavy hitting, so... Hold on to that one for when we get there. Uh, In what way was the spiritual immaturity showing in Corinth? Well, verse 4, Paul says, you guys are, are, you have a party spirit. One person says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Turn back to chapter 1. Do you remember this isn't the first time Paul's mentioned this? Verse 11 of chapter 1. Really, starting back in verse 10, I appeal to you by the name of Jesus that there be no divisions, for it's been reported by Chloe's people that there's quarreling. So he's talking about the same thing, strife here. What I mean by the quarreling is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas or Peter, or I follow Christ. So we've talked a little bit about this already, this party spirit. And Paul calls it here a worldly way of thinking. Are you not being merely human? Uh, 
it is certainly human. We know this sort of behavior, this sort of way of thinking all too well. Uh, we like to get behind certain people, certain platforms. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that inherently. There's nothing wrong with belonging to a particular political party and for campaigning for it. There's nothing wrong with um, uh, rooting for a, a particular sports team and wearing their jerseys around. I mean, it depends what part of Michigan you're in and which jersey you're wearing. But, you know, inherently, there's no, there's no issue. Uh, you need to take your own safety into consideration. Uh, here's the issue. Generally, what happens when we do that is that we vilify the other team. We vilify the other side, uh, the people that don't share a perspective. We make the other guys out to be villains, and there's no place for that in the church. That kind of behavior, that kind of party spirit kills churches, kills them. There can be no party spirit in the church, nor party leaders, because there is only one head of the church, Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is, is calling out in the Corinthians' behavior. You're, you're not acting like Christians because Christians follow their head, the Lord Jesus Christ, and don't get into these petty disagreements about which pastor they liked better, which preacher they liked better, which ministry initiative they're behind. Oh, I am for team elder. I'm for team deacon. I, there can be none of that. There can be none of that in the church. So Paul then moves to correct them. This is the way that they've been behaving. They're immature. Now he wants to correct it. He's kind of offering, first four verses, he offered sort of like a a diagnosis, and now he's offering a a prescription. This is how we can correct this and fix this. Uh, He is prescribing a better way of thinking in two areas in verses 5 through 9, in two ways. First, he wants them to think differently about ministry and ministers, and secondly, to think differently about God. Uh, First, he makes it clear what ministers really are, and then secondly, what God really does. And as we examine these verses, you'll notice that Paul has moved into using a metaphor from the agricultural world, right? He talks about uh, the church as God's field, ministers as those who work in the field, but the fruit or the harvest from that field, the produce, uh, that comes from God, who alone can give the growth. Uh, So first, though, the first area of correction is to remind the Corinthians who ministers really are who ministers really are, they are not worth the fuss that the Corinthians are making over them. They are merely, as Paul says in verse 5, servants. Look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Who do you think we are, essentially? We are just servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Well, this the one half of that sentence, servants through whom you believe, the people would say, yes, exactly, right? You brought me to faith. And then he says right after that, no, the Lord assigned to each. If you were converted under my ministry, Paul says, or if it was Apollos's ministry, that's not because of Paul or Apollos. It's because the Lord made that designation. The Lord was pleased to bless our ministry, was pleased to call you to faith through one of us. So he's deflecting attention But he just calls them servants. We're nothing special, and servants are not greater than their masters. We're going to see he's he's wanting to get all the attention back to God. Now, he does make a point to say that he and Apollos were called to Corinth for different, though complementary, reasons or purposes. He planted, Apollos watered, right? Paul started the church, and then Apollos comes in, and he pastors the church and shepherds the church 
Both activities of planting and watering are vital. Each depends on the other. It doesn't matter if you plant a seed, if you plant it where somebody can't water it. It doesn't matter if you're watering, if you're not watering on the seed that's been planted. Both are necessary. So the, the sower and the waterer, they don't compete. That's what Paul means in verse um, 8. Look there. He who plants and he who waters are one or the same. That is, they're on the same team here. They have the same mission in mind or vision in mind. They want to see God's field make uh, 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 or produce and, and yield a harvest. This idea, though, that they are one. He's not saying we're the same person. He's already said we're two different people, Paul and Apollos, and yet we're one and that we have the same mission. And so what he's saying is Paul and Apollos aren't fighting each other. Why are you fighting over us? We're on the same team. How is it that you have different teams where we're apparently the captains? We're, we don't see things this way. Why do you? Furthermore, the Corinthians are wasting their time arguing over who is a better preacher or who's a more caring pastor because it's the Lord who's going to determine the effectiveness of one's ministry. And that's why he says, at the end of verse 8, it's the Lord who pays the wages according to his labor. Right? It's the Lord who gives the ultimate evaluation of the work. It's the Lord who renders the final verdict uh, on their service. And that's coming in the future. You notice that that's put forward, right? He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages. So uh, he's, he's just getting everybody to dial back from this idea of making definitive statements about, no, 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 Paul is the greatest preacher ever lived. No, 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 Apollos is the greatest preacher ever lived. So that's up for God to decide, and he hasn't revealed those things to us. I think ultimately, though, the point Paul is trying to make about who ministers really are boils down to what he says in verse 7. Will you look there with me at verse 7? I think this is very important. He says, So neither he that plants nor he who waters is anything. What's he saying to the church? When you argue over ministers, you are arguing over nothing. We're nothing. Nothing to waste your breath over. Nothing to get your, your heart racing as you get in an argument with somebody. We're nothing. Well, is he saying the work of ministry is unimportant? Absolutely not. But the statement is made in the context of saying everything that God is and God does. They are nothing unless God gives the growth, unless God makes them something. The cult of celebrity has a really powerful pull, but the most influential person in the world, the richest person in the world, the most effective preacher or pastor in the world, how does the saying go, right? Everybody wakes up, they all put their pants on the same way, one leg at a time. We're nothing. What is the deal? What do you think the church would be like if we didn't just view our ministers this way, but we viewed ourselves this way? I wonder how many of you would say that about yourself. I'm nothing. Actually, I have, I have a guess. I think we all would say that. Here's the, the question. How many of us actually think that? It's easy to say, oh, no, no, I'm nothing. But deep down we're thinking, I am something. That's why they're complimenting me right now. I am something. Imagine what it would be, though. Imagine the peace and the joy that would fill a church if everybody actually had this view of themselves. I'm, I'm nothing. 
that, that we would have the view that, that Paul says of his ministry, which actually is what Jesus says every Christian should say, that we are servants. Servants. Do you remember when Jesus said that in Luke 17, 10? So also you, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So Paul first corrects the Corinthians' way of thinking in terms of what ministers really are. And Paul also then stresses finally what God really does. And in keeping with the harvest analogy, he wants to say God is the one and the only one who gives the growth. Uh, These verses are like um, a giant spotlight that uh, Paul is using for the Corinthians' benefit to shine a light on the person of God, on, on get their attention on the right thing, who God is and what he does. Twice he says that God gives the growth. God is the one that builds up his church. God's the one who brings real change in people's lives. It's God. It's God. And you can really feel the emphasis, don't you, in verse 9. Look at what he says. Three times he uses this possessive. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. I think we can summarize Paul's point here simply like this, and it's really important for us all to hear. Your growth in godliness, your growth in godliness depends on how central God is in your thinking. Is God the center of your life? Is he the emphasis in your life? Do you you hear how Paul is saying over and over, it's God, it's God, it's God. Is that what you would say about your life? Or is it, it's me, it's me, it's me. You'll never grow then. You need to grow up, get over yourself so that you can be grown, so that you can be used, so that you can be cultivated. And that means fixing your attention on God, making him central in your way of thinking. The moment we think our success in the Christian life is contingent on us or, uh, or the people we follow, the blogs we read, the, the uh, podcasts we listen to, the programs we implement, or the buildings we buy. The moment we think it's about any of that, we will not grow. It's about God. Anytime we think it's contingent on these things, we should hear Paul saying to us, don't be childish. Grow up. Grow up. And we want to grow up. We want to be grown. If we're God's field, as Paul says, we want to be useful in a fruitful field. What's the point of a field? It's useless if if things aren't growing in it. We need to grow up so we can be grown, so we can be cultivated. So isn't there a correction for, for us here this evening? I wonder if you hear Paul calling us to repentance. Wherever God and his work is not centermost in your life, you will be stuck. You'll be stagnant. You need to stop looking to yourself, and you need to stop looking to other people, your parents, your teachers, your pastor, politicians, certainly, people that you read online, media outlets. You need to start looking to others and to things 
to give you what only the Holy Spirit can give you, growth in godliness. And I wonder if, if you have realized that if this is true, there's one, I'm sure there are countless responses we could have to that message, but there was one response that to me seemed to, to rise to the top as I think about our ministry in 2024, moving forward in a new building. If it's true that only God gives the growth, then we should be doing a lot of praying. A lot of praying. If God's not in the work, we might as well not be working. Everybody who came this past week would have wasted their time. You know, we might as well not gather for worship at all. If God isn't in the work, if God isn't going to use it for his glory, because we're not coming to hang out. That's not what we're doing here tonight. We're not coming to hang out. We're not coming to hear a gifted speaker. I know for seven years you've been disappointed every night, hoping maybe tonight we get the gifted speaker. That's not what we're here for. We're coming to be used by God. We're coming to be blessed by God. That's how he uses us, is he blesses us. He's so merciful. He's so kind and gracious. We're coming because we think, we know, we believe that God can do. God can do something amazing here. God can. Well, if that's true, then we should pray that he would do it. We should pray that he would do it. Pray for your pastor. Pray for your preachers. Pray for your leaders in the church. Pray that God would do the thing that only God can do, that he would give the growth. Let's do that right now. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are sorry for the times where we assume that we could manufacture, fabricate, duplicate, replicate the work that only you can do. That is, to bring growth to your people, to your church, even in our own lives. We have looked to others to do that. We have made idols out of people and things. We have not had you as the center of our life in many ways, and we ask for forgiveness, and we ask also for a redirection. And we pray, Lord, that since you alone can cause the increase and can give growth, though we do the work of planting and watering, would you indeed give that growth? Would there be a bountiful harvest of souls in our church? Would conversions um, happen in this place um, regularly? that you would bring revival, as we sang earlier, that you would revive your work. It is your work, O Lord. I thank you for uh, this teaching from the Holy Scriptures. And we do ask that we would live in light of it and that it would go well for us as your people, uh, your field, your building. Use us in the ways that only you can use us and be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.